This audio recording is produced by Food Addicts in Recovery Anonymous, also known as FA. FA is a program based on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is free and open to anyone who wants to stop eating addictively. The following is one FA member's story of recovery. The opinions expressed here are those of the individual member and do not represent FA as a whole. If you are new or uncertain about FA, we encourage you to listen to several stories to gain an understanding of what the program offers. For information on the FA program, please visit our website, foodaddicts.org. Thank you for listening to this audio recording. To hear additional recordings or to learn more about Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, you can visit our website, foodaddicts.org. Hello. Welcome to this qualification meeting. I'm a food act from California, and I'm your leader for this hour. After a moment of silence, will you please join me in the serenity prayer? God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I came to F.A. about seven and a half years ago. Um, I heard about it when I was living in Alaska. That's where I was raised. And I... um, I heard about it, and I had no idea that at the time that I was a food addict, but I couldn't stop thinking about it, and a few days later, I joined in. So today, I'm going to share about why I do think I'm an addict, why I think I qualify to call myself a food addict, what happened, and how life has changed as a result of that. My parents moved to Alaska from upstate New York when I was two. I was the youngest of three at the time, and I was two, and my sister was four, and my brother was six, and... Um, We lived in Anchorage, and and I started having food. I start being aware of food uh, thoughts pretty early in life. I remember uh, my dad had a wholesale business, and every once in a while he'd have an opportunity to come home with something, a big quantity of something that we didn't normally have. At the time in Alaska, there wasn't a lot of fresh produce. When you go to the grocery store, there'd just be a really small um, section of the produce, and so... Um, if he came home with fresh produce, that was a really big deal. And I loved that. I loved right from the beginning. I remember it might have been the first time I really saw something. I love big quantities of things. And he came home with this kind of big crate of a food item. And it meant I could have as much as I wanted. And I loved that. I love the idea that there was not a shortage of something. And so... When he said, like, you can have as much as you want, that was magic to me. And that um, I tried to recreate that feeling many times of having as much of something as I wanted. So my food addiction showed up in different ways at different times. Sometimes it was big quantities, but sometimes it was something really special and something little. When I was in third grade, my dad met, um, we met another family, and they were in a related business, and they were the uh, manufacturer's rep for different kinds of products, and a big part of his business was um, sugar products, and so we would, um, this girl moved to my school when I was in third grade, and she would bring samples of her dad's products, and we talked the teacher after months and months and months of letting us put our two desks together, and so finally the teacher did, and I just was in heaven being able to 
with her like, okay, here we're going to have one at, um, as soon as we start our math assignment. And then afterwards we're going to have another one and we divvied up things. And when we go to each other's houses and make, especially like blender drinks, I was really into blender drinks as a kid and um, pouring, it was so important for it to be even Steven. Like I never wanted to feel like it was um, short, like I was going to get the short end. And so pouring things were really, was really important. And so early on, their food had this importance to me, and it was special. And having friends that I could do food things with was really, um, like I remember, I could pretty much pick every grade of elementary school and have a food associated with my friend of that time. Like I remember the girl in fourth grade who turned me on to a, pr- a particular breakfast item, and I remember a girl in seventh grade who had this one particular machine for doing things, and another one had... Um, you know, particular recipe that was on the back of a box that she turned me on to. And, you know, those were so special. I was so excited. And what I didn't know at the time was that there was so much going on in my internal life as a kid. Like there were so many normal things and maybe some unusual things that were going on that I didn't talk to anybody about. I just kept them all inside. And so I had no idea. I would never have named myself then as a scared kid. But I look back now and I gosh, oh yeah, like I remember in third grade, we moved to another house and it was not fully built by the time we moved there. And I was terrified of that house. Like I would go into the bathroom and I would check every possible place that somebody could be hiding. And I would look and I, I would even look sometimes and I remember lifting up the back of the toilet to see if somebody would be hiding in the back of the toilet. And I knew like intellectually that nobody would like be there. I knew it wasn't so unusual to have somebody be in a hamper. Like somebody, I mean, as a kid, I could have fit in the hamper. It's a pretty good size hamper or in the bathtub or maybe even under the cover. But I knew like in the little drawer in between the sinks or in the back of the toilet. But I was just so afraid. But I never told anybody any of those things. Like I never talked about that. And so I didn't know it at the time, but those were the kind of times afterwards like I wanted to calm down or I wanted to feel comforted. And so going and finding something in the cupboard was easy to do. There was food, always there was food available. And so I learned pretty on like, oh, I could go find something in the cupboard. And then especially when I got old enough to start um, cooking for myself, then baking, you know, then I could go manufacture it myself. So I realize now it's kind of like a cocaine addict who um, you know, has their own little, you know, drug lab going on down in the basement or something. I could do it in my own kitchen. And so that continued on. And then as I got to be in high school and college and, you know, into my adulthood, um, using food in whatever kinds of way. And I was really exciting for me. Food was really, um, it was something to look forward to. It was something to comfort myself with. It was something to bond with other friends with. It was a gift. I loved giving food gifts. It was really hard for me when I came to this program to think, well, what can I give people? I remember my sister said, Stella, your love language is food. And it was so true. I remember once somebody stole my credit card and they, um, and this, uh, I think it was like an auto parts store or something, called me up and said, hey, you know what, someone just came in here with, you know, with your credit card, and we tried to chase the guy down, and um, but we got we kept the credit card. I didn't even know it was stolen at that point. And the only way I could think of thanking them was to bring food to them. I could not think. And, I, you know, honestly, I never did thank them because I could never come up with a better idea. I mean, I think I finally called them, but to me it was like that was the only way to 
thank some shop, you know, people I didn't really know is to bring them some food item. And that won me a lot of, I mean, I felt like I got a lot of points at work and things like that. Um, I was notorious for coming up with like fun food breaks that we could take to bond as a, as a work group. And so what was happening for me during that time, what I didn't know again was that I wasn't maturing in many ways that people should normally mature. Like, for example, doing laundry. Like I, as I got older, you know, I was responsible for doing my own laundry, but I just would take my clothes and throw them in the closet or on the floor. And then when it was time to go to school, especially on game days where when I was in high school, we were supposed to wear a dress on the days of, um, you know, competition, I would, um, you know, have to sort through like the dirty laundry and reach in the dirty laundry basket where I always had kind of that, um, whatever that smell is that dirty laundry has when it's been packed in a laundry basket for a long time, you know, and, and pull out nylons and lots of times they had holes in them. And so at the last minute I was taking nail polish and trying to, you know, put them, uh, you know, put on places and try the nylons on to make sure the holes were, you know, high enough up in the hose that they wouldn't show on my legs. And, and so feeling that unkept kind of feeling or um, like not really together and kind of faking it. That was so much a part of my life was faking it. And, you know, I, I, I convinced myself I had such a facade on the outside of having it together but I never talked about, you know, the rushing that I was doing at home or I didn't talk about the things that were happening in our household. I didn't talk about, you know, if I liked a boy, I didn't even tell my sister who was always asking those kind of questions. Like I just kept it all inside and so then I would eat. And so, um, you know, I would obsess about and not only obsess about food, but I would have these fantasies about, you know, I would watch certain commercials, even as a sixth grader and fantasize about some boy and all that was kept inside. And so then when I got old enough to actually start dating, you know, I didn't have those good guidelines. I didn't have any idea of, you know, how to have, how to interact in a healthy way, how to have boundaries. And so I would do things that, like, I would have kind of an idea of things I wanted to do or didn't want to do, but in the moment I would compromise those. And then I'd feel so uncomfortable. But again, because I wasn't talking about it, I wasn't asking for help. Like, not asking for help was a big part of of my food addiction of that fear doubt and insecurity and so um i wasn't maturing in so many ways and then all that uncomfortableness i didn't know what to do with it and so my great idea was like i know all and it might be read a recipe book and make some and lots of times it was something healthy and so it didn't show up necessarily my top weight was when I got, went to college, and it was probably my freshman year, and I weighed maybe somewhere in the 150s. And I got really uncomfortable with that, but I loved the, you know, I loved going um, with the girls in my dorm room and saying, hey, let's go on a, we called it a run, let's go on a run. And there was a, um, a row of fast food restaurants at the college that I went to in Oregon, and you know, we'd, um, we'd say, oh, let's put on our, like, we had our pajamas on, and, you know, we'd go, and it was like this big experience to go to the fast foods and go from one to another in our pajamas, and it was this bonding experience, and I and I love that, and there was this kid who was a really good runner, and we would um, test him, like, see if you can go to the store and get us this particular item and be back in six minutes, and... Um, <laughs> And so, you know, that was just so much fun to bond with my dorm mates. And so I put on weight during that time. And at the end of, I remember I thought I was really cute. Like I came to college my freshman year and 
because I was so empty on the inside, I really longed for an identity. It was so important for me to try to find an identity. So I came to college with all the apparatus that I could bring with my identity. And it was like my bicycle and my backpack and my tent and my hiking boots and my guitar and um, all these things that made me, I was um, an independent, like rough and tough Alaska girl. I was My um, fantasy in high school was... Um, having a little cabin on a mountain that I would fly into, and that was where I was going to live. It was a very isolated kind of lifestyle, but that sounded safe and secure. And I so much just wanted to be able to tell people, like, oh, what do you do? I want to have some image of me. And so that freshman year, I came to school, and I had that image, and I was in a pretty normal-sized body. And I remember at the end of the freshman year, I had had my hair done in a really curly style that was popular in the 70s. And... Um, I was frumpy, and I thought, I thought, oh, they, I thought, boys, they only like you for how you look, because I had changed so much. It was like I was, um, I could interact well with, well, I was, I don't know if it was well actually, but I could interact with boys my freshman year. But I had kind of a chip on my shoulder by the end of my freshman year, and I thought it was them, but really it was me. It was like I, I'd compromise, compromise myself so many times during my freshman year that. Um, that I didn't like. I could I, by that time I really knew I didn't like who I was, and I began to sense there was something about the way I ate. That's where I started recognizing that something about the way I'm eating is not working well for me. So my sophomore year, I read the book Sugar Blues, and that said, oh, you know, sugar was the culprit of all these things. So I stopped eating sugar, and immediately I lost weight. And I found that, and that just kept a pattern up for my whole life. Pretty much any time I needed to lose weight. I would stop eating sugar, and for me, you know, most of the things that I ate that had sugar in them had flour in them too, and so um, I would lose the weight right away. And for a while, it would stay off, and then, but not too long, because then I'd think, well, gosh, that worked really well, so now I don't need to do it anymore. That was my thinking. This is what this worked, so I don't need it anymore. And then the weight would start to come back on, and so I chronically put on between 5 and 15 or maybe even 20 pounds, like up and down, up and down throughout much of my adult life. And then I ended up um, joining a 12-step program um, for other issues in my life. And that's when the denial of the food addiction really started to break down little by little by little. I I got a relationship with a higher power, and it was like I couldn't lie to myself quite so much anymore. Like one time, um, someone had suggested that I go to an AA meeting so I could understand, you know, alcoholics better. And a woman was talking about how she chewed gum, and she was saying, you know, I'm treating gum just the exact same way I did with alcohol. I'm hiding it. I'm always making sure I have extra. I don't like to let other people have it, and I never want to be out. And she said, sometimes I'll be chewing one piece, and then. Um, before that one's hardly done, I'll get another one ready. And she was correlating to alcohol. And when she was describing that, I was thinking, gee, that's really funny. That's how I feel about this one particular item that I kept in my desk drawer. I had this big Costco-sized bag of this one. It was kind of a garnish thing, but had and anyway, but I kept it in my desk drawer. And um, I hated to be the thought of being out of it. Like any time the bag started to get and I only ate it a handful at a time, and it was a really big, you know, institutional size. It was actually for restaurants. And, um, you know, anytime I got maybe to a third, I would kind of start to get a panic feeling, so I'd make sure I had usually an extra one at home uh, in case. But if not, then I was at the store. And 
I really could correlate to that her gum with her gum. So I began to recognize, like, yeah, this is kind of strange. And at work, I um, found myself beginning to correlate uncomfortable work experiences. Like, I'd get off. One time, I got off the phone with this guy, and I don't think I handled the call very well. I kind of threatened him with, um, in a way, and like, kind of with my power. What I thought was a power at work. I felt like I had some influence over his business. And when I hung up the phone, I felt uncomfortable about that, and I immediately went to my drawer and I caught that. I thought, oh, that's interesting. So those kind of correlations happen more and more frequently. So I wrote um, a whole list of questions to ask myself because I wanted solutions. And so, you know, I did a few different things. And one of them was, well, I'll analyze why I'm, what I'm feeling right now. And if I really am hungry and I'll try to determine intellectually whether or not I should eat because it was really hard for me to know if I was really hungry or not, if I really should be eating. I wasn't sure exactly how much to eat and how often to eat. So I tried a lot of different things, but I wanted to find the right way. And my goal as I got to be older was to eat healthy. I really did want to eat healthy. And so I shopped at the natural food stores and um, quite often, and I, I cooked really healthy things. And that was the tricky part of this disease for me, is that I thought that if I was eating healthy things, that food wasn't really a problem. I didn't know I was still using it like a drug. And I could make a big you know, pot of something that didn't have, I guess, a lot of calories in it or stuff, but have quite a lot of it. And that was, again, just like when I was a kid, when I wasn't growing up, same thing as adult. I was like, I was married and I thought my husband, you know, I thought he was the one who has the problem. And I really thought that was the, I, I really thought that he, you know, I was trying to make these changes and I didn't think he was changing. And so the, the day I left him was the day that he basically poured down my drug, my drug down the sink, and I was baking that morning. It was a typical Saturday morning. I would wake up and feel energy, and I didn't know what to do with the energy, and so frequently I would start baking, and then I'd start eating what I was baking, and then I'd be so tired, I'd have to go take a nap, and I'd wake up with great intentions on Saturdays, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna organize all the bills, and I'm actually gonna do those photo albums, and I'm gonna get the laundry done, and you know all those things that I'd wanted to do as a kid, like get my nylons like washed, and you know actually take clothes to the dry cleaner, and um, you know kind of keep my house in order, and have paperwork in order, all those things that I'd wanted to do. I, those were my intentions now because I knew I'd like I took a home organization class three times like I was always trying to like better my life and so I was going to implement some of those things I learned but what would happen is I'd wake up energy with energy I'd feel kind of overwhelmed and and I didn't know really where to start and I didn't have that self-discipline to actually take the first action and so I um, would bake and then what the re what it would really do is it'd bring down my energy make me tired so I'd take a nap so I could have a it was an excuse to sort of sleep through all that time and then pretty soon it's time for lunch or to take the kids you know out to do an activity and so it was a way of avoiding like those kinds of responsibilities and one particular Saturday morning he took the blue bowl that I was making and he took in the sink and he um, it still had things in it and he filled it up with water and I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that he would do that. Like to me, there was no, there was, I don't think I would have felt more betrayed if he'd had an affair. Like that was like, I just couldn't, it was like cutting off my arm. And so I left. That was the day I left. It was like, that was the day I made my decision. And that was the end. And 
I always thought that was his fault. It wasn't until I'd been an F.A. for a few years I realized, oh, my gosh, I was the alcoholic, but I was the alcoholic with food. And he was just like I'd always heard about, you know, like the wife of an alcoholic or the husband of an alcoholic pouring the, you know, the booze down the sink. He was doing that to me, and I didn't know. And those were the kind of things, like, I had no idea that I was had so much responsibility for the deterioration of that that marriage. I would never have said that being a food addict contributed to my divorce. Um, it's taken me a lot of time to see the ways that I have been that have contributed to those kinds of things. So what happened for me is I did try to control it in different ways. I took some, I did a class, I think it was three times. You could do this thing called way down workshop and um, it was supposed to teach you, you know, to stop eating when you were full and not to eat until you're hungry. And I thought that was great. I thought that I was really looking for things that made sense. I wanted something logical. I didn't, I knew that like, you know, I, I knew that liquid diets and all those different kinds of things were advertised. You know, I knew they didn't make, I knew they weren't good for, for most people and certainly not for me. But things that were logical um, and practical and healthy, those made sense. So that made sense, except that what it didn't account for me is that I was always trying to get away with a little bit more. I, like the rules, if there was enough rule um, fudge room for me, you know, I was going to push it. And so I would I would think, hmm, this is, I think this is actually where I'm comfortably satisfied. And I would know to stop. Like I would think this is the place to stop. And then the arguing would come in my head. It's like, well, but maybe just one more bite. And sometimes I would eat quite a few more bites, but most of the time, kind of near the end, I would, I could take just one or two or three bites more. And it was like, I knew I'd cross the line, but I couldn't help it. It was like, I could not stop every time because there was so much wrestling. Like, it's no big deal. Like, what's the bite? What's the deal with like one bite of, you know, some healthy food? And the people around me would say, Stella, you're just such a perfectionist. You know, you just, you know, it's, it's no big deal. But I knew I was using food. And most of the time when I would eat too much, um, and get that tired feeling, it was a way of withdrawing for life. But And one bite wouldn't necessarily make me go that much, but it would start the obsession, and it would start the, the that terrible feeling of guilt that I was so familiar with. And so when a, when I called a friend one day and asked her, or I, didn't, I just asked her how she was doing. I hadn't seen her in a long time, and she said, oh, I'm, new, I'm doing this new 12-step program called F.A., and she started describing what she was doing, and she mentioned that she was calling a sponsor every day, and she mentioned that, she said, you know, it's only noon, and I've already talked to somebody in Boston and somebody in London, and she said, I'm getting my kids up in the morning, and we're actually doing things. We're not just hanging around the house till 10 o'clock in our pajamas, you know, kind of snacking on sweet things and um, drinking hot drinks, and she said, my house is getting clean. And that part of it sounded really attractive to me. When she mentioned weighing and measuring food, that sounded, that didn't sound like logical to me at the time. It didn't sound like that sort of natural healthy thing that I was looking for that seemed to balance. But I couldn't stop. When I got off the phone with her, it was a Sunday. And I remember being in my kitchen that afternoon and thinking, wow, there's a spring in my step. And I hadn't even noticed that there wasn't a spring in my step before that. But and I thought, what is that? And it was like, it was hope. I hadn't ever realized I even was not having hope until I felt it. And then I thought, I thought, you know, gosh, 
I, I didn't think at that point it could really be for me, but I had questions. And so I called her back the next day or so, and I asked her more questions. And the funny thing is she had been doing it about 30 days, and she I remember she felt so inadequate. I could tell because she, she kept saying, oh, you should really ask so-and-so, a mutual friend who knows more about this. Because see, what had happened is a mutual friend had um, originally was from Boston and and then moved to Alaska. And then when she moved back to Boston for a while, she found F.A. And so when she came back to Alaska, then that's when she told this woman and this woman told me. And so I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, like it seemed like she had so many answers as I, as I asked her different things. And I remember she said, yeah, I thought weighing and measuring the food um, was weird, too. But she said, now it makes so much sense. And so it was so helpful for me to be able to tell her all my questions and all my doubts and and to hear her say, yeah, kind of like basically, yeah, those are good questions, but here's here's more information. And so the other gal actually sent me a whole packet of things about F.A. She sent me the 20 questions and brochures, and she sent me some connection magazines, and she sent me um, the sheet of paper that was people who would be willing to help find um, a sponsor, a long-distance sponsor for somebody. And that was, and I think she, there was um, the Gratitude and Action newsletter. She sent me copies of that. And so during that time, I was thinking about it. And I was, because I'd already developed a relationship with a higher power, I was saying, like, God, like, is this from you? Could you show me? Like, could you really show me if this is from you? And I got um, all these bugs in my house. It was so weird. One of the things I had done was I, you know, in eating healthy, I'd bought all these different kind of flowers. Um, you know, that were supposed to be healthier than kind of regular. And I had this big cupboard in my living room because I had so many. So here I'm a single person with so much food. I can't keep it in my kitchen. I have to have it in my living room as well. And um, I got three different kinds of bugs. And there was this, even one that was this, there was these weird larvae one day when I walked into my apartment and they were along the creases of the ceiling. And so I had to get rid of all my flower products. And so there was different things like that that, that were coming to my mind, different things I'd remembered about food and um, different truths I'd kind of learned and just different things I remembered and that that let me know, like, oh, this really was for me. And so I I called somebody. I made some phone calls off that long-distance sponsor list, and it took a few days. And so I thought, well, while I'm waiting for a sponsor, I may as well start now. And so I, I thought I'll eat three meals a day with no flour and sugar. And so the first day I was so excited. I think I woke up like 2 o'clock in the morning. So I ate my first meal then, and then like at seven, then, then I went back to sleep, and then at seven I ate my second meal, and um, and then at eleven, like I had my third one. It's like, uh oh, I'm like done for the day, and I thought, I thought, and I thought it was probably going to be not that hard, you know, not that complicated of a food plan, but I thought, I bet there's more to this than I know because I'm eleven o'clock and it's done. I said, and in fact, I thought, I bet they eat more than this because I was used to snacking. I was such a snacker, and so my meals were always small, and that was another way I could deal being an addict is keep that constant you know drip of of food into my system by just eating little amounts frequently and then telling myself, "Oh, but it's healthy, and this is the healthy way to eat so anyway, I got a sponsor a few days later, and she told me to um, go to three a a meetings. And she said, you know, get on your knees in the morning and ask God for an abstinent day and read the 24-hour day and take quiet time in the morning. And uh, at the end of the day, um, thank God for an absent day and read the two pages of the big book and then throughout the day call other FA members. So 
that seemed like a lot at first. Like, wow. And I had a hard time remembering what those were. And so, um, you know, I devised a system for helping me remember what those were. And I did them right away, though, because I knew that if I was going to what felt like surrender my food and let somebody else that I didn't know, a total stranger, tell me exactly what to eat, I knew that I was going to open up my whole life to them. I knew that I couldn't hold anything back. And see, really what had happened is I knew that I was holding back in certain areas of my life. I could tell. Like I was pretty much an extrovert and I shared a lot of different things with a lot of different people, but there were still these parts of me that I didn't describe to other people. And it was mostly my thought life. Like I just didn't admit to things that um, that I didn't know how to do or wasn't sure about or like basically a lot of the doubts and fears. So I started doing the things that she suggested and I went to AA meetings and I found if I kept an open mind, if I really tried to practice what they talk about identifying and not comparing, that even though they were talking about alcohol, I could really relate. Like I remember one guy describing once how he um, couldn't believe he was out to eat with somebody and they didn't finish a drink and he just wanted to grab the drink and, you know, like drink it for him. And I couldn't relate to that so much as I could relate if it was like, you know, something people would eat after dinner. Like I couldn't believe somebody would leave half a sweet item on the, on their plate. So, and they were so kind to me and it began to wear away at some of that chink I had of having it sew together and to identify like these different people and recognize like, Oh, over time, I recognized, like, yeah, that, like, I'm just like the guy who lives under the bridge with a brown paper bag, because I had just convinced myself that I was above that because, you know, we, you know, owned, you know, expensive equipment, you know, toys or whatever it might be, or I knew how to do certain things, or I'd gone to college, or because I wore a business suit. And so um, what I noticed, though, was that I was hungry at different times, and I might be hungry, like, say, at 4 o'clock. That was the time when I found myself being hungry. And so what I did is I, I used the tools that my sponsor had suggested. And so that would be a time I might even make an extra call at 4 o'clock. And then what I'd notice is that talking about things, by the time 5 o'clock came around, I would be looking, I wouldn't even realize. It might be like more like 6 o'clock. It's like, oh, I need to eat my dinner. So it's like, well, that's interesting. I'm starving at four o'clock and now an hour or two later I'm having to remind myself that it's meal time. So I you know, I saw right away those tools really worked. And what I found happened was that they for me they all worked in conjunction with each other. Like sometimes I would talk to somebody and I didn't have, I thought I had really good social skills, but in so many ways I was still putting my foot in my mouth. Like I would talk to somebody who'd been absent for years and they might mention, you know, a parenting challenge. And all of a sudden I would give them all this parenting advice. And I could tell, you know, I'd talk and talk and I'd get nervous and say more. And, um, you know, and then they'd be like, okay, well, you know, kind of like, <laughs> keep coming back. And uh, I get off the phone and I think, well, I was really helpful. And, but deep down, I kind of had this sense like, oh, maybe I said too much, but I didn't want to admit that to myself. And I just feel so uncomfortable that I'd want, I think, oh boy, this is a time when it would be really, I'd love to eat something that I think could calm me down. But instead, I'd um, maybe like read the 24-hour day book. And it was like, oh, this was so helpful. And so I found many times when I applied one tool, it would, or I'd go to a meeting, like when I would go to AA meetings, for example, sometimes I would come away feeling so lonely. Like I like wanted my people or like, you know, there was just a lot, 
a lot of um, camaraderie or lots of times they go out to eat afterwards, those kinds of things. And um, I would walk away from a meeting almost kind of feeling worse temporarily than I did then. And so there was a woman who had also had a similar experience down another outlying area. And so I'd call her and she suggested, um, she said, bookending your AA meetings with a call to a fellow. And so, you know, going to a meeting would stir up things. But I think really what was happening, it wasn't so much what was going on at the AA meeting. I'm really honest with myself. It was the content of what they were talking about. I mean, they were talking about all the things that go into being an addict. And it was chipping away at my denial, and I was feeling uncomfortable. So it was easy to blame, oh, yeah, they're serving cookies at those, excuse me, but they're serving food at these AA meetings. It was easy to blame that and say that was the thing instead of go, oh, really, but that person was just talking about, you know, whatever it was that I could really relate to. So I found it really helpful to take the quiet time. Like it would calm me down when I would, you know, say or do things that I, you know, was regretful about um, or just learn how to make mistakes I guess talking to fellows you know finding out that it was normal and like my sponsor would say we fumble and we bumble and we just don't eat and that was really helpful and learning to slow down I didn't realize that I was not only trying to pack as much food as I could get and not get away and get away with but that I was doing the same thing with activities and there were certain volunteer kind of activities I was doing where, you know, maybe just start out with one role and then I'd let it sneak into three. And so I realized that pretty early on. So it was really helpful to get guidance from a sponsor with looking at my schedule and what's realistic and what's not. And so, um, you know, learning to manage my time better so that I wasn't so tired and I wasn't feeling so stressed out at times or so martyred, that was really helpful. And then... Um, Coming to meetings in uh, like California, I flew down. That was another thing that was really helpful is she suggested that I fly to areas that had meetings that were really strong. And so I started doing that. I started going to the convent, all the business conventions and then coming down like for PI sessions or those kinds of things. And I got to experience fellowship. And that was such an amazing thing to watch the people who interacted with each other and had relationships. And over time, I began to realize that I was being, I was isolating not so much geographically where I lived. I mean, Alaska is kind of an isolating place to begin with, but especially in not letting people get to know me so well that they might tell me things about myself before I even knew it. And so I realized at some point I wanted that. I wanted to grow so much so that and allow other people to see me and have those kind of relationships. So I moved to California after about four years. So I've been here the last three years. And I got to be in a live AWOL. I did phone AWOLs, which... Oh my gosh, I couldn't believe how, you know how wonderful it was to be in a live a wall and um and then like really allow people and that's been the I guess the biggest part of my recovery is letting people see me and point out things to me that I didn't see about myself that I probably never would have seen if I didn't have somebody who was sharing those things about me. So that's been such a blessing and I think why I summarize that for me personally is just humility. Like I don't have to, I don't have to have an identity as an Alaskan or a tough girl or whatever it might be anymore. Like I get to be essentially another child of God. Like that's the basic of it. I get to be a child of God and that the way I get to do that, the way I get to practice humility is weighing and measure my food so that I'm not using food to deal with all the things in life that come up that are just human things. They're just normal parts of growing up that everybody goes through, but that to be healthy, 
everybody, or at least me, needs to learn how to grow through those. And so that's been my journey is really um, peeling away those layers so that I get to be one among many. So we'll close with a moment of silence in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you for listening to this audio recording. To hear additional recordings or to learn more about Food Addicts and Recovery Anonymous, you can visit our website, foodaddicts.org.